Amen. All right, we're in the fifth frame. We've got two more frames to go. We will be picking up on Tuesday with the interpreter's house, dealing with the caged man. I'm hoping that uh, that particular optic and that particular revelation will serve us well. I was thinking about this statement that I've made to us before. Everything is for us in the scriptures. These things were written for your learning that through patience and consolation of the scriptures, we might have hope. But not everything is to us directly. Sometimes when we are studying the word of God or hearing it expounded and taught, you really do have to ask, how relevant is it to me at this time or across the totality of my experience? Everything in the word of God is not for you and I. We've talked about that before. There will be uh, elements of scripture being fulfilled or having been fulfilled that does not apply to the Christian in the New Testament. We might draw application from it. We might learn something didactically from the Old Testament. For instance, the offering of the sacrifices, which were done morning, noon, and night, as the psalmist says, those things can give us an extraction of larger redemptive realities in Christ, but they are not to be viewed as imperatives for us to do. That's the difference between the scriptures being to you and the scriptures being for you. The scriptures being to you in the Old Testament would, would teach us about how important Israel was called to keep the Shabbat, the Sabbath day. But we in the New Testament do not keep literal Sabbath days. That is not obligatory. In the Old Testament, if you didn't, you died. In the Old Testament, we were observed, called to observe circumcision for the male child on the eighth day. If you didn't, you died. You were cut off. That is the Hebrew concept of brith, or the idea of cutting away the foreskin so that your soul is not cut away in circumcision. We could actually elucidate so many kinds of things in scripture where they are to us, but not for us. Even so, as we're working through the Pilgrim's Progress, you know, you and I may not have an immediate contextual <clears throat> experiential urgency to make direct application to, uh, to any of the frames necessarily. We're coming up on the caged man. I'm looking forward to our interaction, our dialogue about that. How does the caged man make sense to you? How do you observe it, understand it? Where do you see it in your own life or in other people's lives? But those kind of questions would really require your capacity to properly comprehend the interpretation of it and then a legitimate application to yourself. Otherwise, we could be engaging in sort of theological postmodern, um, if you will, imagination, right? We could be imposing scripture on ourselves. That's not designed to be there. Some things are for observation only. And when that's the case, you want to acknowledge that. Every trial, every scenario, every event in the scripture is not a type and pattern of you. And, and you need to know that as well. There are going to be times when it's about other people and what God would have you and I to do is to stand back and learn from them just in case down the line it becomes us. So we're looking at a frame now that's dealing with a stately palace 
and Christian is coming to understand the difference between a long distance vision of things that give you a general interpretation and a near distance vision of things that give you much more of an acute, a much more dynamic, a much more urgent interpretation. Isn't that what we're learning? At least in this particular frame, what Christian enjoyed was the delight of this massive palatial space and castle of the home of the king, which is a metaphor of the kingdom of God, as we know, and the kingdom of God in terms of the believer's departure from this world. The kingdom of God has many facets to it, but when we think about the kingdom of God, there's a spiritual element, Romans 14, 17. That's what Jesus meant in John and Luke 17, 21, when he says the kingdom of God is not with observation, it's not empirically discerned because the kingdom of God is within you. So there is a kind of spiritual reality to the kingdom of God for every believer at the heart, at the revelation level, at the participatory level, but it's spiritual. You would agree with that, right? That's Romans chapter uh, 14, 17 as well. So I quoted this, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And when we talk about the kingdom of God from that spiritual standpoint, <clears throat> we're talking about that dimension of the kingdom that is expressed by a people of God who have been brought into favor with the Father through the merits of the Son and are therefore exhibiting the characteristics of the kingdom of God, i.e. righteous relationship and behavior with God, peaceful establishment of fellowship with God and a joyful disposition because we know God in the person of Christ. And these are emitting qualities that should show up in our life as we fellowship with God. We could argue <clears throat> that this dimension of the kingdom of God is really the tutorial work of the spirit of God in the life of the people of God, right? Where the people of God are called to live largely on a spiritual plane to be spiritually minded is life and peace, but to be carnally minded is death. And so for the believer, we want to live in the domain and the dimension of the kingdom of God at that spiritual level. We want to be grounded in the righteousness of Christ. We want to be uh, practicing the uh, impartation of the spirit of God at the level of, of obedience in faith in Christ. We want to have that peace that passes all understanding. We want that. And we want to live in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And that requires wisdom in walking with God in a crazy world, particularly in the context of what we're dealing with now. Because Christian, and remember his name is Christian, not because he is one yet, Although this is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? That this man is being drawn into levels of revelation and insights and biblical truths that we could argue that some Christians don't even have up to this point to be brought into the nearness of the interpreter's house to have these seven frames given to him before he makes his way to the difficult hill where he will find the efficacy of the atoning work of Christ, liberating him from his preoccupation with his what? His sin, which he still has, which he's still burdened with. And remember, the burden of his sin here is not the idea that you and I still have a sin nature. 
You can know that that's true and not be burdened by that. The burden here for Christian is that he does not know yet the power of the atoning work of Christ in liberating him from his conscious awareness that he is in a state of sinful rebellion against God. He needs to come into that as all sinners need to come into the power of God's grace that is uh, communicated through the gospel, i.e. the work of atonement on the part of Christ's cross, the idea of forgiveness of sins. That's what this is what Christian needs to come into, does he not? Because until the forgiveness of sins is comprehended fully on the part of the Christian, fully enough to liberate him from his sin, he cannot continue in the joy of the Lord until his conscience is made to be at rest in the merits of Christ in his behalf. And that's what Christian has to still deal with. But you might agree with me on this, that what Christian is going through now is a wonderful distraction. This is a wonderful distraction. I'll talk about this a little bit and we'll move on into our points. I remember a young man, and this is going to get into the caged, the iron cage next week. I remember a young man coming into our community some 25 years ago, 20 years ago. It was actually more than that. This was around 1999, 24, almost 25 years ago uh, in our old building. He was an Asian brother and he would come visit and listen to the preaching that we engage in at Grace here. And uh, in those days, Uh, We were new to radio ministry here in the Bay Area, and we were preaching what we understand to be the gospel of the grace of God with very clear and poignant uh, expositions of what we call the doctrines of grace, which is hated everywhere in the world, by the way, on the part of the natural man, because the doctrines of grace deny human beings any glory in terms of what God has done for them. When grace is properly taught, the sinner is humbled. The sinner is not humiliated, but the sinner is humbled. And what we hear in the teaching in our world today, the common parlance teaching in America, is a man-centered gospel where God is doing everything he can to get your attention because he wants to be your bellhop. Right. That is a radically different gospel than we preach, than Luther preached, than Calvin preached, than Zwingli preached, than Knox preached, than Spurgeon preached. Are you guys hearing me? And there was this young Asian brother who had uh, traversed a lot of theology. I could tell by the way he spoke and he was struggling with the doctrines of grace at the level of the doctrine of predestination like a lot of people do. A lot of people will struggle with the fact that God is sovereign, that God is particular in his purpose as a sovereign God, that God elects those who are going to be saved, and that God in his own mystery and prerogative will allow multitudes to perish in their sins. Some people get stuck in that sort of lofty equation of theology. They get stuck there wondering, Are they the elect? Now, the Bible is full of the doctrine of election. Don't let anyone fool you. It's all over the place. We're going to touch on it here in a moment at point number seven again. Um, 
the, the doctrine is clear that you and I are chosen unto salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. And God is the one who has called us. We didn't call ourselves. He called us. He chooses us. He chooses us. And God graces us to continue in the faith. We call this the doctrine of election. But my dear brother really struggled with it. And why was he struggling? Because he was looking for concrete evidence within himself by which he could assure himself that he was truly one of God's elect. And what we used to say to him, and I did a lot, I said, you know, what we will not say to you is what you often hear in, in Arminian camps or camps where the grounds of your salvation is based upon something that you do. You won't hear from me. Just believe. Just believe on the Lord. Just, just you know, just, just do something and you'll be all right. Because what we know is until God gives you grace, you must struggle with your sin. This is what we're learning with, with Pilgrim is, are we not? And so you don't get to let a sinner off the hook when the Holy Ghost is drawing him. The Holy Ghost will not necessarily give you an affirmation of your salvation for weeks or months or even years. That's a secret thing that often goes on with some. And that will also be, ladies and gentlemen, uh, within the um, within the confines of God, knowing that there are areas in your walk. I'm not being um, uh, personally critical here. I'm just saying God knows when to give you a release and an affirmation of your sonship, even though he has already predestined you to it. God knows how to do that. He knows how to do it. Um, And the reason that he doesn't the moment you ask is because he's building things into you. And he's also confirming something that is very hard for us to get a hold of. And that is that God is going to always be God. And that's going to be a problem for us until we learn how to get along with that teacher called humility. I talked about that the other day. You guys remember that. So God always resists the what? Always. Whether saved or not. This is what Peter had to figure out. He had to figure out that he can't just run up on Jesus, tell Jesus, no, I'm not going to let the devil take you. No, I'm not going to let you be crucified. No, I'm ready to lay down my life. And he really arrogantly asserted to himself to be more superior than his fellow apostles, did he not? And, and God had to let him fall. Now, Peter was as secure in his salvation as Abraham, as Isaac, as Jacob or David. But he had to really bump his head hard to learn how that he was an obstacle to his own favor that God had given him. And so it is with you and I. The point that I'm making here is that the caged man, the iron cage in which this man is, is a real precarious scenario for some people. And it does not at all mean that that individual won't be saved. It just means that he's going to struggle with a cage that he allows himself to stay in because he's asking for evidence that can never be derived from his own heart. He's asking himself to bring all the evidence necessary for him to have confidence that God has smiled on him in his grace. He's asking to overthrow everything the scriptures have laid out propositionally concerning what salvation is. So when the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, that's a good proposition. 
When the Bible says, verily, verily, I say unto you, the one that hears me and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will never come into condemnation because he has passed from death to life. To me, that's a great promise. Is that a great promise or what? So when the Bible lays out that you and I have been chosen, you know, under salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, whereby we will obtain eternal glory because of the grounds of Christ. That's a great proposition, isn't it? When the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's God's mercy that he saved us. His saving us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's a good word, don't you think? It's a good word when the scripture says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Another they will not follow. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Is that a good promise? When the Bible says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes unto the father, but by me. I think that's a good promise. And when the word of God says, all that the father gives me shall come unto me. And he that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Is that a good promise? So why are you asking for more? It's called unbelief. And I didn't even begin to give you Old Testament passages. Blessed is the man whom the Lord chooses and causes to draw near unto him. And so forth and so on. Right. I could lay out 50 verses that underscore God's magnificent overture of infallible purpose in our life to save us. And the fundamental evidence of us being saved is that we find ourselves believing those propositions. Right. Because faith comes by and hearing by. Okay, so now what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do but simply take God at his word? So this is what the cage is about. The cage is about a man who really wrestled with propositional truth to the point that he shattered his conscience in terms of its ability to rest on the objective claims. That's what we're going to get into. That's what we're going to deal with. But as much as I was sharing with you, this young Asian brother, he would come in every week and hear us set down. Uh, the doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Those are what we call extractions of the concept of the gospel. They are not necessarily the gospel themselves, but they are extractions of the gospel. A person can actually uh, intellectually buy into what is called the five points of Calvinism and still not be saved. You do know that, right? Right. And then what I will also say just for the record, because I have you here, a person does not have to ever have known of the doctrines of grace and still be saved. Right. So uh, when we have a fuller knowledge of biblical truth, all that is, is added information as to the coherency and to the consistency and to the clarity of what God has done for us. But for us to know at the fundamental level that God loved us and gave his son for us in order that we might be redeemed, that is fundamental to the gospel. And even a child can get that. Did that make some sense to you? 
Right. In other words, we want to avoid intellectualism as a kind of grounds for a security of our salvation, because at that point you're moving towards Gnosticism and Gnosticism is a kind of mystic, hierarchical, knowledge based sort of uh, confidence that because I know more, I'm more sure of my salvation. When in fact, no matter a little child, seven or eight years old or six or seven years old could be just as secure, if not more so in their salvation than you because they believe the simplicity of the gospel. Am I making some sense? Right. So the believer has to also make sure that he or she doesn't sail the gift of faith down the river of intellectual speculation or the aggregation of massive amounts of knowledge uh, as a substitute. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, of which young children can have that at levels that are remarkably intuitive and remarkably what we would call implicit in a way in which it could humble us. They could trust God in ways in which it would just humble us, even though we have anthems of information. Am I making some sense? So you never want to take what you're learning and trade that for who you know is the grounds of your salvation. It's supposed to be an addendum. It's supposed to augment you. But you never trade, you never trade the fundamental gift of faith which grounds you in what God has done for you over for just more and more knowledge. Did that make some sense? Extremely important. So I I guess what I'm getting at here is that in the frame that we're dealing with now, what I like about what's happening with, uh, with, with Christian is that Christian has gone through three, two, and we're on a third emotional expression. The first one was delight. You guys remember that? He was delighting in what he saw. But the next thing we discovered over in point number six and seven is that he became disturbed. Him being disturbed or as it has in Bunyan's writing, he was what? Amazed, amazed. Look over at it again so we can make our way forward. This would be under uh, point number eight. Now was Christian somewhat in amazement, should be translated that. Now, why was he in amazement here? Do you guys remember? He has been brought near to the stately palace and he sees in front of him a horde of men as saying are preparing to enter into the door And that's quite all right until he also sees another horde of men called soldiers or men who were armed. They were men with weapons. They were men with arsenals. They were men with weapons ready to hinder those men from entering. So Christian has gone from just the view of a peaceful, tranquil, beautiful palatial palace to a warfare warfare on the ground right in front of him. That's the difference between a long distance vision and a near distance vision. Remember what I said, it's one thing to be there. It's another thing to go there. It's one thing to contemplate being in glory. It's another thing contemplating our walk into it. And that's the reason why even though Christian, when he saw the vision from far off, he wanted to go right away and the interpreter said, no, we got, no, we got a lot to learn here. And, and I would say even by application, 
the idea of you and I drawing nearer to the kingdom of God. Draw near, draw near, draw near. That is the proposition of the gospel. Uh, come is the proposition of the gospel. As we're drawing near to God, we're going to learn more about the acute nature of the kingdom of God at the warfare level. Jesus did not lie when he said the, the, the gate is straight and the way is narrow. He didn't lie about that. He, he didn't lie when he said there are many on the broad road, few on the narrow road, and even fewer that actually find the gate. So what you're seeing in the optic in front of you with these men, which began to trouble Christian under uh, point number eight, is that we are seeing what Matthew chapter 20, verse 16 says, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. And I don't want to deal with that lightly in this sense. When you hear the term, many are called and few are chosen, don't simply objectify that proposition and say, oh, God just arbitrarily chooses whom he wants. And the rest are left to, you know, in the dust to dry. That's not the way you interpret that verse. That verse is interpreted in the context of a deliberation that's going on in the hearts of men as to the nature of the value of the kingdom of God. The idea that some will enter and others won't will be clearly fleshed out in that some will want it and others really won't. The idea of some making it to glory and others not will be those who are persuaded that glory is worth the struggle. And others will go, no, it's not. Now, now this line of reasoning that I'm laying down to you is the application side of the preservation of the saints, is it not? Because what we're dealing with here now is seeing how the saints persevere when they run up against struggle. And Jesus laid it out in the parable of the sower and the seed, did he not? Seed is sown on the ground of the hearts of men on a surface level. Objectively, you see it sown. People are in the congregation. They're hearing the word of God. You and I have absolutely no idea what the outcome of that word is going to be in their life. They may all on the day they hear the sermon be rejoicing and shouting and happy about it, but the seed may not be taking root. Am I making some sense? And, and the seed may not take root deeply because that's the difference between the shallow ground and the good ground. And so over time, what we discovered was that the word sown to all four characters was just dealing with four different heart attitudes around scripture. There's one brother, a sister, a group of people in the church. They come in every Sunday and they listen, but they have no intent for that word to actually do anything by way of getting a hold of their soul. While they're sitting and listening to the preaching, their mind is on a thousand different things. They're just going through the rote form of going to church because maybe their mama bringing them to church or their daddy or whatever the case may be. But their heart is not in it. So before they even get to the parking lot, the birds of the air have swept down and taken the good seed out of their heart. So they don't even remember any point in the sermon, any sub point in the sermon. They don't even remember the title of the sermon. Not some people. And then the word is sown in other people's uh, lives at such a shallow level that they begin to commit to themselves, commit themselves to it at the emotional level. Because somehow they have been taught in our culture that to really persuade yourself that you believe something, you have to emote. 
And this is huge as a manipulative tactic in religion, particularly our black churches, that unless you are emoting, you aren't showing yourself sincerely be moved by the Holy Ghost. Nothing could be further from the truth. All your sighs and tears could never take away the guilt of your sin. Right? It's not by emotionalism. You can emote, but please, do you know how criminal you are by nature? You will emote in the eighth row. By the time you get to the door, your tears are dry. By the time you get out in the parking lot, you're ready to commit another crime. Right, because emotionalism is not the way to affirm whether or not there is efficacy taking place under the preaching of the gospel. The thing that one must do in terms of hearing the gospel is ask God for grace to hear it sincerely. That's what you do. You have to ask for grace for that word to take root downward, bear fruit upward. Does that make some sense? And of course, even that asking is a sign that you're hanging out with the teacher called what? Humility. You better find that teacher. He's the one that'll get you closer to God, will he not? His name is called humility. Um, And that's where you learn how to say I'm wrong. A lot. Um, and, And you're cool with it because course correction is the way of life, right? Um, and so what we're dealing with here is um, our dear brother, uh, Christian, uh, engaging in delighting. And that, that's not a bad thing. It's a definite delight. But now he's disturbed. But by the time it's over with, guess what? He's going to be encouraged. Now, I want to make sure that we actually capture these stages delighting at the superficial, emotional, appropriately emotional level. I can't wait to get to glory. Disturbed by the course, got it. Disturbed by the way, got it. Disturbed by the walk, got it. Disturbed by the trials, totally got that. Do you? I totally get that. Yeah, the course, the walk, the way, the trials, I definitely get that. Every day we are supposed to walk by faith. Every day we are called to fight the good fight of what? Every day we are to seek to lay hold of eternal life. Every day we're called to engage in a subjugation of our carnal nature by the grace of God. Are we not? Every day we are called to put on the whole armor of God, which is what we're about to get into. And so Christian don't know nothing about this. This brother's still making his way. He never seen a spiritual battle before. He never saw a spiritual battle before. Now he's watching a spiritual battle battle up front. He's got a front row seat on a man who's taking this matter of entering into the kingdom seriously. You guys keeping up with me now? This is important to capture this. So let's let's work. Let's walk this through as we began to deal with it um, last night. We're at point number eight. Point number eight. Now, Christian was somewhat in amazement. Then we get to point number nine. At last, when every man started, because it was a bunch of them talking about going. I actually do need to contextualize that. Look at verse seven, because it needs to be uh, verse six. Let me go back to verse six for some of you that are new, because I'm going to quote the text in verse six here in a moment. There also sat a man a little distance from the door on the side at a table side with a book uh, with a book and his inkhorn before him. 
to take the name of him that should do what? Enter therein. And, and I give you Ezekiel chapter nine, verses one through 10. I'll talk about that in a moment. So in the frame, what 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 Christian observes is to get into that door or even to begin to proceed toward that door. You got to put your name down on the ledger. That's an additional overt expression of confession of faith in Christ. That's Matthew 10. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father, which is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father, which is in heaven. And so the writer's ink horn with the table is a ledger of men and women who are assigned to be identified with the kingdom into which whose doors we're about to end. That's the enter. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. This is the ledger of citizenship. This is the ledger of citizenship. Uh, back in the day, it's not so much that way today because you and I are moving into another whole global paradigm around borderless nations and borderless states. That's why we're having the hell that we're having here in America because borders are being removed because na- national identity is no longer the global agenda, as you guys know. But it used to be you could not get into anybody's city or kingdom except through the front door. And up on the ramparts at the top of the walls were soldiers to make sure you didn't just walk in willy nilly with some nefarious plan. Well, that's the nature of the kingdom of God as well. It's the nature of the gospel. In fact, in the matters of the kingdom of God, what you and I are looking at is really a recapitulation. Because I told you the resistance that's taking place here, the resistance was seen at the wicked gate, was it not? And if it wasn't for goodwill being smarter than a naive Christian, Christian could have found himself wounded at the gate by the darts of the enemy. Wounded at the wicked gate by the darts of the enemy. Is that true? Because they were there uh, perched to shoot him and goodwill snatched him and brought him in. Did he not? What a glorious picture of God's grace of preservation, particularly at the point of transition from a general awareness of the gospel call to the particular and specific call into the narrow way. Remember, if Christian does not go through the straight gate, he does not get salvation. And yet, even on the straight and narrow, he's still not at Calvary yet. He's on the narrow way that leads to it. Am I making some sense to you guys? So here's the thing that I want you to capture with that, just in case uh, you don't know. And I've always been thinking about wanting to build out those uh, accounts, you know, because we don't have forever. We just got like a year. So uh, but what I wanted to share with you is that you want to mark that the straight and narrow gate is simply that some people are blessed to be put on the path of the true gospel. Some people are blessed to be put on the path of the true gospel. There are all kinds of false gospels out there of which Jesus calls the broad way of empty, man-centered, carnal, worldly, material religion. Am I making some sense? Right. In the narrow way of the gospel is the narrow way of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That is the narrow way. 
The narrow way is the Bible way, is Jesus way, is grace, is faith, is scripture, is the glory of God. Did that make some sense? Right. These are the fundamental points of what we call reformational theology. We understand that what separated uh, faithful Christians in the era of the Reformation from uh, the apostate church at that time, Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy and uh, the Anglican church of which uh, Bunyan is writing about now. And we'll talk about that here in a moment is that men and women came to discover that salvation is exclusively a relationship between the sinner and Christ on the grounds of what Christ has done for them apart from works. And that was never, ever the cardinal doctrine taught by any of the state churches, the national churches or the world church, i.e. the Catholic Church. It was always the work of Christ plus your work, plus the blessings of the church. Did that make some sense? That's broad road religion. That's straight broad road religion. And we have it in America as well. So um, what we are dealing with here for Christian, remember, Christian got put back on the path by the evangelist. And so an evangelist is really someone whose whole job is to do one thing, make sure that Christ is preached in the sufficiency of his fullness so the sinner is not distracted by some other mechanism by which he is told or she is told they can be saved. The sinner has to be met with a real exclusivity of the gospel. It has to burden them. They have to be burdened that Christ is the only way. It cannot be optional. It cannot be, you know, an addendum. It cannot be ancillary. It has to be exclusive where you and I are being brought when the work of the spirit of God is taking place. John 16, 8, he's convincing you and I that our sin is of such nature that we can never get rid of it ourselves, nor all the churches in the world together could never come up with a system or mechanism by which we could get rid of our sin apart from the merits of God's son. Did that make some sense? Right. And this is where a lot of blood was shed in the Reformation. This is where a lot of blood was shed because men and women had their eyes opened by men like Wycliffe and men like Huss And men like what we call the Morning Star Reformers, men who rose up, who had Bibles and saw what Galatians said. Galatians said, now the just shall live by what? Because we know that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. Right. And so once the message of the gospel of the free grace of God in Christ was preached, men and women were liberated from the shackles of the fear of Catholicism, which had them trapped in massive means of works religion, which they need to be delivered from today as well, as you and I know. And really what you and I are dealing with right here is Christian is experiencing once again, the winnowing work of the spirit of God, keeping men on the path of grace, even though the path of grace is also a path of warfare. Okay, that's all that's all we're doing right here. This is the issue. There sat a man at the gate with the writer's inkhorn before him to take the name of him that should enter 
in. This is Ezekiel's text, Ezekiel chapter nine. Let's just read these 10 verses right quick and then I'll move on because I want to finish up today. But let's read this and understand John Bunyan's interpretation of this as it applied to his time. This is what the text says. And he cried in my ears with a loud voice. So uh, he cried in my ears is Ezekiel talking about the angel that was uh, guiding him into this vision saying, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. Now the city is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's under judgment and the prophet is going to see the judgment in a vision motif. Okay. This is a vision allegory that's taking place. Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. Even every man with his what in his hand? Destroying weapon in his hand. And you're going to notice in the text is six of them. These are angels and they have destroying weapons, weapons of warfare. So it's a battle. Okay. now notice what it says. Verse two. Let's keep going. Let's walk this through. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate of the temple, which lies toward the north. And every man, a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with white linen with a writer's inkhorn. See John Bunyan's writer's inkhorn and guy. So among the warrior soldiers that are poised to destroy Jerusalem is an individual who is going through and writing names down. This is in the midst of a warfare. Watch it. He was clothed in white linen, which means he is represented as one who has already triumphed in Christ. Remember, white linen is because men and women have obtained that righteousness, which is by faith that stand in righteousness. I'm telling you about they have the white linen on because for them, they've already overcome death. That's the white linen symbol in the book of the apocalypse. Notice what it goes on saying with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and they stood beside the brazen altar. So they've gone into the temple. The brazen altar is where judgment takes place. What do you do on the brazen altar? You offer the bullock. So the symbol here now is that blood is about to be shed because of rebellion against God. Y'all got that? Notice what he says next in verse three. I want to walk this through. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the chair. For those of you who have been under my teaching for many years, you know what that means, that God has departed from Jerusalem in terms of not accepting her sacrifices anymore. When the spirit of God is gone from the worship, your state is Ichabod. The spirit of the Lord has departed. So now that the, the, the spirit of God has left the chair, this is the mercy seat. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is where the blood is shed. When the spirit of God is gone, that means there is no more atonement. The only thing that's left when there's sin is judgment. That makes sense, right? So let's go on with this. So he's gone from the chair whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. Verse four. And the Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the what? That's the city of Jerusalem. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and do what? Set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the what? Abominations that be done in the midst thereof. So I want you to capture the ground level disposition of God's elect. The ground level disposition of God's elect. And what I mean by God's elect? God's elect are the ones that God marks on on their forehead. This is what you read about in Ephesians chapter 113, 2 Corinthians 120, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. We all have received the seal if you are a believer in Christ. Am I making some sense? That seal is the 
Holy Spirit. So the imagery here is about protecting God's elect in the midst of a warfare scenario from being mortally wounded. The idea of putting the mark on their forehead is so that the men who are engaged with the warrior weapons can identify them and not harm them as they go through destroying these men. So Ezekiel chapter nine corresponds with Revelation chapters eight and nine, the trumpet judgments. You can go back and read it. Okay, Revelation seven, eight and nine, by the way. And so notice what he says. Go ye after him through the city and smite. And let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Uh, Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. Now watch this. But come not near any man upon whom is the what? And begin at my sanctuary. This is the language that Peter used in 1 Peter chapter 4, right? Um, if, if, he, he said in 1 Peter 4, judgment must begin at the household of faith. And if it begins at the household of faith, where will the sinner and the ungodly stand? If God first judges his own people, which he always does, because to whom much is given, much is what? That's right. The ungodly and the wicked don't stand a chance of avoiding God's judgment. And so what you see in this account is that how God, before he brings judgment on the church, marks out his elect. You guys got that? So from God's side of the equation, what you guys are looking at is the doctrine of preservation. Did that come home? It's the doctrine of preservation. Now, of course, God knows who his elect are, but you're getting it in a vision form for comfort and for edification that God knows how to keep those that are his. And as he said it through Peter, he knows how to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He knows how to separate the godly from the sinner. And the separation here comes at the level of sealing, sealing. And we talked about this before, have we not? To be sealed does not mean that you are taken out of the midst of danger, but rather protected and insulated in the midst of danger. If we were to take up the sealing doctrine, this is what it looked like on a psychological level. Are you ready? The sealing doctrine, which God uses to preserve you by giving you the spirit of the living God, is seen at the pragmatic level of your faith being sustained even in the midst of the war to continue going forward as God is calling you to himself. Did that make some sense? It's important for you to get that, okay? So preservation is God sealing you. Perseverance is you responding to the sealing because grace is given to you. May I go back to our previous frame? The devil is pouring water uh, water on the fire and Christ is pouring oil on the fire. Same thing. The Holy Spirit is the seal. The oil is the Holy Spirit being poured into the heart of the believer, keeping the flame of faith lit so that it is not extinguished by all of the floods of the wicked one. That comes home, doesn't it? Right. So that's the language that I wanted to capture with you, because this is a daunting vision for a pilgrim. He didn't know this was kind. This was the kind of battle that believers are engaged in. These are real battles. Well, I asked you on Wednesday night, you know, what does the battle look like for you? We'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit more tonight. 
So one of the things you want to do when you and I are doing exposition of scripture is we really want to um, indulge the text. Remember what I told you? We want to indulge the text because we want to be able to hear from God. We want to capture the vision. We want to understand its implications, its nuances. And you know when you have because your heart goes, aha, I got it. Okay, and the only thing you do after you go, aha, I got it is, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, mercy on me. Right. That's what we want to do once God gives us the interpretation. And remember, the interpreter is a type of the spirit of Christ taking Christian through all these visions. Is he not? And remember what we learned? Christian was told by goodwill to go to the interpreter's house because there you will learn excellent things. Right. Even things that make for your salvation, as we've already learned. So notice what it says. But do not come near the man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So who were judged first? The elders. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is what? Required. Look at verse seven. Walk this through. And he said unto them, defile the house. Now, this is God telling the angels to defile his temple. How come? Because it was already defiled by the abominations that were done by the people and by the rulers. You guys do know that, right? If you don't, go back to chapter 7, read 8, and now you'll be ready for 9. Because God never brings judgment arbitrarily. You guys know that, right? Whenever God brings judgment, it's after long periods of time where he has sent his prophets and told the king and the princes and the rulers and the elders, hey, God sees your rebellion. Stop it. He gives them two or three witnesses. Sometimes many, many years. Jeremiah preached for over 20 years until Babylon finally came upon Israel. So God often in a long, almost inexplicable way warns us, does he not? Once you see the bomb dropping, metaphorically speaking, once you see the judgment coming down, it's after major periods of impenitency and hardness and rebellion on the part of mankind. You must know that. God takes no pleasure, Ezekiel says, in the death of the wicked. But he still brings it because he's a righteous judge, is he not? So notice what it says here. He said unto them, defile the house, fill the courts with the slain, go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. I want you to see and sense the visceral response. I want you to get this because this is going to be important. We're looking at a war, are we not? We're looking at a major disadvantage on the part of the Jewish people, are we not? But that's because they raised their fist against God and fought against God by their rebellion and disobedience, did they not? That's because they chose other lovers than the one true and living God, did they not? That's because they went to Assyria. They went to Egypt. They went to the pagans and rejected Jehovah, did they not? I'm trying to help you understand that when you box with God, once he gets in the ring, because all you've been doing is shadow boxing. You might impress, you know, ignorant folk. But if God ever gets in the ring with you, it's over with. I'm betting on God every time because you'll never win that battle. If God ever fights back against you, you lose. And human beings dare to fight with God. Do y'all know that? Anyhow, notice what he says in verse eight. And it came to pass while they were slaying them. And I was what? I was left. Who is this? Ezekiel, the seer. 
Now, Ezekiel was watching all his mess, is he not? He says, and after they were done slain, I was what? So he saw them wiping out men and women everywhere, hasn't he? And now he sees himself. Watch this. He fell upon his face and he cried. And he says, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the residue of Israel and the pouring out of your fury upon Jerusalem? Great question, isn't it? All right, so here's the takeaway. I want you to get this take, get this takeaway, get this takeaway. Get it now. Don't be a warmongering Christian. Don't be a warmongering Christian. Don't be a warmongering Christian. Don't take pleasure in the death of souls. Don't take pleasure in the death of souls. Did you hear that? It's really important because if we were to deal with the perverse uh, opposite of this optic where the enemy is destroying, the goal of the enemy destroying people is to harden your heart to make you a warmonger. When God does it and gives you a vision of it, it's to humble you. Remember, call on the teacher humility and fall on your face and say, Lord, have mercy on me. If it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. Or my wife, or my children, or my grandchildren. See what I'm getting at, saints? Don't love war. It's not, it's not the right, that's not the right takeaway. The right takeaway is what Ezekiel does. Falls on his face and says, oh, Lord God, train your heart to be empathetic at the destruction of the wicked. And how much more so at the slaughter of the righteous? Am I making some sense? Especially when the righteous are going through it, then you are even more empathetic. Verse 9, verse 9, Ezekiel 9, 9. Then said he unto me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great and the land is full of blood and the city full of what? For they say the Lord has forsaken the earth and the Lord doesn't see. That sounds like my generation. Do you see what happened here? They bought into a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Did they not? They bought into a strong lesion that they should believe a lie. If you look at the latter part of this verse, this is Romans 1, where they have exchanged the glory of the invisible God, the incorruptible God, and they have now made a God out of creeping things, four-footed beasts, uh, and, and birds of the air, and mankind, have they not? We know this in Ezekiel chapter 11. So notice what God says, they have forsaken, they have, for, uh, they have filled the land with blood. The city is full of what? Perverseness. That has to do with um, demonic, religious, sexual corruption. Just want you to know that. Like all of the stuff today that we are uh, uh, embedding in policy today, that was what they were engaging in in that day, okay? The, the crass homosexuality, the crass bestiality, the crass witchcraft and, and engaging in seances while at the same time engaging in orgies. All right, that's what they were doing. This is what goes on in governments right now across the world. Your governments are doing the same thing right now. Okay, Bohemian Grove, as old, they got all kind of new spots now. That's what your leaders are doing. That's what your leaders are doing. You need to know this. And so what God said is the only reason they're doing that is because they don't believe in a God that sees everyone. That makes sense to me. Right. So when God comes to you in the truth, he says he's omniscient. All things are naked before him with whom we have to do. Then what that means is you can't hide. Sinner, 
You can't even hide in your heart because God sees our hearts. I've already told you, God knows the intents of our heart. He knows our motives. He sees them afar off. With God, the lights are on all the time. I don't care what hiding place you're in. It's all lit up with God. It's more lit up with God than it is with you. Right. And so what God said is they bought into a idol God because only an idol God can pretend to be a God but can't see. Right. They bought into an idol God for the Lord has forsaken the earth and the Lord does not see. Literally here, it means he does not care. He gone and he don't care about what we do. If that's not antinomianism, I don't know what is. Now, you may not know what that means, but what it means is when you don't have a sense of healthy accountability. You and I will live like sinners. Did you understand what I just stated? When you and I don't have a divine accountability system, a divine accountability framework that God sees it so that we can remain honest with him. If we don't really believe there's a God, I I see people every day call themselves Christians. They don't believe that there's a God. Didn't we learn that from Psalm 36 with David? The transgressions of the wicked tell me they don't fear God. So how people act indicate whether or not they know the true and the living God. See what I'm saying? David made it plain in Psalm 139. It doesn't matter where I go, you're there, Lord. If I go to hell, you're there. If I go to the heights of heaven, there. If I go forward, you're way in front of me. If I look backwards, you're behind me there too. God, you encompass all my ways. Now that is the idea of the believers understanding how God predestines everything. Does that make some sense? Right. So what's really beautiful about the all encompassing GPS system of God himself is that you can calculate things going forward. Just understand God has already figured out your calculations. You can calculate going backwards. He's already got that database all locked up. Go sideways. He got you covered. You just might as well check in with him. Say, Lord, are, are, are these data points working? Is is this particular uh, uh, geographical location? Am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? Am I going the right way, Lord? Because I know your GPS system can't be knocked off, of course. See what I'm getting at? Right. So look at verse 10, verse 10. Finally, our final one. Oh, sorry. Leave it there. We, We that's enough resolve there. Now, what I love about this optic so we can go for it is that. Um. What Bunyan was indicating when the man wrote his name down on the writer's ink on was that that man was persuaded that suffering was worth entering into the kingdom. And this is what we meant by separating the sheep from the goats, separating the elect from the non-elect. Okay, this is the this is the point of what we call the doctrine of perseverance. This is Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 10, verse um, 22, verse 22 in Matthew, uh, sorry, Matthew 10, verse 16 through 22. I've got a few more things to say, then we'll go into Q&A. I want you to see the end of the, uh, um, the, the allegory before we go into Q&A. Notice what it says. Behold, this is Jesus talking, right? I send you forth as what? In the midst of what? Don't you think that's a problem? Right. Now it's a problem if Jesus is not Lord over the wolves as well as the sheep. Did that make some sense? 
Now, if he's Lord over the wolves, we're good to go. So I'm going to help you right here. I'm going to help you for just a little bit right here, because I know you just thought, you know, God sending us out to be dinner for the wolves. He would, if that's his decree, that you would glorify him in death. And in some cases, that's the case. That is the Fox's Book of Martyrs. When persecution hit the church in the second, third century, all the way up to almost the first millennium, the saints were being killed everywhere. And and that's what Jesus said. Some of you, not all of you, some of you will die. Not all of you. Helping you with your Bibles. Is that okay on a Friday night? Some of you, not all of you, right? Think about this. If all of the saints were being killed in the first century, there would be no saints in the second century. I'm just helping you just in case you, you, your head all jacked up. All the saints get killed. No, but some. And there's something quite insightful about living in a culture of martyrdom. Because according to the dispensation of God's purpose and grace, martyrdom frequently becomes a means by which the faith of God's elect is strengthened. Right. The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The more that the saints died, the more people believed the gospel in the Roman Empire. Are you guys hearing me? It's equivalent to when Pharaoh put out a contract of genocide to kill the boy children of the Hebrew people. The more he put out those policies, the more those children were born. You guys remember that account? This is God working over against a policy of wickedness that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And God came to create and produce and procure abundant life. I'm making some sense, right? So there are times in church history where the best thing for the church in God's own providence and and prerogative is suffering. Because you and I know that in really good times, in really lax times, in really prosperous times, in really material liberal times, we don't do well as believers. That makes some sense. You don't like it, it's just true. And one of the things you and I might know on a much more micro conceptual level as I move forward, here's what you know, but you forgot. It's going to help you. We get further away from the Lord when we are operating out of carnal security and the normalcy bias, where we don't have to pray to God every day. We get further away from the Lord when we operate out of carnal security and the normalcy bias, where we don't have to pray to God every day because we got plenty of money in the bank. We got, we got a system that allows us to never even think about being hungry. And we go about our day fundamentally as atheists. Every now and then we'll praise God for it, but largely we aren't really rolling with the Lord. We're just rolling in a carnal way. Am I making some sense? So then what God has to do is put all kind of little speed bumps in our journey, in our excursion. And then we get mad at God for the speed bumps because he wants us to slow down and think about the fact that you didn't jump in the driver's seat and started rolling your own life instead of letting him drive. I'm making some sense. I'm making some sense on a Friday night. Am I not? Right. And, and, and what God will have to do is give you flat tires. He let the engine overheat. Now you're on the side of the road. You know what I'm saying? And now you're tripping, but you're calling on God. And God goes, there we go, child. There we go. Call on me in the time of trouble. Right? And that's what he'll have to do to us sometime. I don't like it. Do you? I don't like 
being troubled. I like my routine. Man, here we go again. Lord, what? I did that to myself. I set up fortresses against my God. I set up all kind of bulwarks and strategies. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, got it all to that. Bless this, Lord. Bless, bless me. Because I got my whole situation in order. I'm going to do this in the morning, this at noon, this at three, this at five. Every day of my life, I'm feeling good. Feeling good about because I'm in control. <laughs> now, way deep down in my psyche, there's a little voice that suggests, you know, you're messing up. You know, you're messing up. But we like being in control. Prosperity often destroys us. And so God has to bring suffering into our life. Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as what? This here is the ethic uh, and protocol for the believer to navigate a world full of wolves. Wise and gentle. Y'all got that? If we needed to actually, uh, ex, you know, ex- exegete this, we could. And, and, you and, I, and what, what the Lord would be saying to his people through that portion of scripture is don't be arrogant. Don't be unnecessarily contentious. Don't think that just because you're a child of God, you get to push people around. Am I making some sense? Right. So what Christians in America will frequently do, I've seen it. Have you seen it? Christians in America will wake up in the morning and actually think that they are a wolf or a dog or a lion or a cheetah, a predatory animal instead of a sheep. Stay with me because I know I just lost a lot of you because you're not getting it. The arrogance of the Christian will make him or her believe that they are the one in a dominant position. And therefore, they can abuse people. They can disrespect people. They can arrogate a sense of authority over people. You hear this in the church. When God would have his people to remain humble. Because after all, all you really are is a sheep. Now, I know you woke up in the morning and thought you was a beautiful leopard. Black panther. Right? Well, all of these predatorial skills, you just, you chop the devil up, you know, turn him into a lie, all that stuff. But in reality, you're nothing but a sheep. If you get in the wrong position, they will eat you up. See what I'm getting at? And your shield and buckler is not your ability to agile your way around, maneuver with your words. You're not that slick, Christian. You're sheep, right? And then God has to teach us that, that the weapons of our warfare can never be carnal like that. And that our shield is is that of humility in a way in which we watch how we talk. We're careful as we engage people. That our strength is our weakness. We are voluntarily weak because we appropriately acknowledge that in myself I can do nothing. I'm just a dumb sheep. I can't even get out the way. I can't even outrun my predator. You you think you can, but you can't. You can make application to this across many different things. You really can. Where you end up, once again, like a sheep, 
just going, and then the Lord had to deliver you. See, you're back at square one, aren't you? You didn't, you didn't with all of these machinations about being this superhero, this, this warrior, this, and, and now you're back at, that's all you were in the first place, was a sheep. That's all he's saying. Verse 11. Let's keep going. But beware of who? Now, this is where you and I are called to exercise divine critical thinking skills. And that really is essential as a sheep, is it not? If as a sheep, you know that intrinsically you don't have any ability to actually subdue your foes, don't you need to think your way out of precarious situations? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I'm going to recommend a movie. I enjoyed this movie. This one here is a a 10-part series on Netflix. It's called Lupin. Lupin. Okay, L-U-P-I-N. We'll talk about it on Tuesday. L-U-P-I-N. I want you to watch it. It's a beautiful movie. Did anyone ever see La Miserable? This is old school stuff. Do you guys remember La Miserable? If you can find it, watch it again too. But watch Lupin. Watch Lupin. I'll talk to you about it on Tuesday. Okay? It's going to keep you up. If you, if you guys like binge movies, you're going to be kept up between now and Sunday. But make sure you come to church tomorrow. <laughs> then you can go back to the movie. Then come Sunday. Then you can go back to the movie. You can't watch it between 5 and 7 on Monday. Uh, and then you got to be here on Tuesday. Lupin. Beautiful. Lupine, check it out. OK, we'll talk about the moral elements in it and, 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 and how uh, rich it is around um, uh, destroying the wicked who thinks that they can just do whatever they want to with people. And God has a way of fixing things. Just you're going to enjoy it. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. Verse 18. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Here he's talking explicitly about Paul, is he not? But he was also talking about Peter and James and John, wasn't he? Look at what he says. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. For it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. Do you see what he does here? He tells the Christian, do not lean on your own understanding. In a situation where you are now, by divine purpose, put in a position where the authorities of the world can swallow you up. You don't get to fight your own case. You have to have a paraclete. You have to have an intercessor who actually is going to give you the words necessary for you to be able to engage that governmental authority in a way that advances God's glory and keeps you safe. Did that make some sense, child of God? In other words, you and I are not called to defend ourselves. We do have an advocate with the Father, do we not? We do have an intercessor, do we not? In fact, we have two, don't we? The Lord Jesus and what? The Holy Ghost, right? Those two are more than capable of bringing to our mind what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and when to keep our mouth shut. Do you believe that? Yes, indeed. That's called walking in the Spirit. That's called walking in the spirit. That's what the saints had to do. That's what they had to do many times. Unless it was their time to what? Die. Verse uh, verse 20. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. Is that a beautiful truth or what? Is that a beautiful truth to be in a level of subjection to God in a way in which you're depending upon God to actually use your faculties, your vocal cords, your voice, your larynx, your lungs, your mind and your heart for him to just do have your way, Lord. How beautiful is that, right? 
But do you understand you got to have a teacher next to you? His name begins with an H. What is it? Humility. Because God resists the Right. Isn't this something to have a God that says, I'll be with you in the courtroom of your adversaries to help you win that battle if you trust me, right? Isn't that powerful? And the brother shall deliver brother up to death and the father and the child and the children shall rise against their parents and cause them to be put to death. We're almost there in America at this level. Verse 22, and you shall be hated of all men for my namesake, but he that endures to the end, the same shall what? There it is. This is why that brother that was standing in front of the gate, seeing all of that cacophony going on, he went up to the writer with the inkhorn and said, put my name down. You know why? Because he was encouraged by this exhortation. And this is why the interpreter allowed Christian to see it as well. Y'all keeping up with me? He allowed Christian to see the battle so that Christian could see the outcome of the man or the woman or the people of God who pressed toward the mark. All right, let's go. Let's go through our outline, finish up so we can do some Q&A because we walked through this quite a bit on Wednesday, had a great time. I'm going to start at verse nine, point nine, and go through these fairly quickly. At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christians saw a man of a very stout countenance. Remember what I told you the term stout meant? Because again, this is old Saxon English. It goes all the way back to Bunyan's day. It means to be a man that is bold, a man that is confident, a man that is resolved. It is really the idea of a person who is skilled to make their way through the difficult challenges. What would be inferred from this is the idea that the Christian has become clear that the world in which he lives in is no friend of grace. And that because of that, he has to be sober. He has to be vigilant. He has to, she has to be skillful at handling the word of life. They have to know doctrine. They have to understand apologetics. They have to understand a worldview that allows them to see men and women for what they really are, not what people say they are. A biblical worldview will allow you to have the kind of lens to see people for what they really are. Otherwise, you can buy into a delusional lens of some false assumption and find yourself surprised when what you're dealing with are a bunch of snakes. But you presumed them to be good people. Am I making some sense? So this brother was ready. In other words, there's another way to understand this bold face. Are you ready? He had a prepared disposition to fight his way in. He had a prepared disposition to fight his very stout continence. Very stout continence. That's the term. Resolute, firm, skilled in battle, valiant, bold. It, again, it implies that he had been preparing to engage in combat. And that's what the Christian is called to do. I'm sorry, that's what you call it. Sorry, you're called to fight a good warfare. You're called to fight the battle. You're called to it in all kinds of different ways as well. Look at verse, uh, uh, point number 10. The which when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword. You guys see that? And put a helmet on his head and gingerly walked toward the door. He rushed. Do you see it? 
Right. And, and Christians saw that this is called a, an allegory. So it's a narrative. It's a moving story. And we must pick up on the nuances. Why did he rush to the door? Because he was compelled to enter in. Let's get started. Right. Let's get started. In other words, he was not vacillating. He was not halting between two opinions. He wasn't saying the Lord loves me. The Lord loves me not. We don't believe in daisies. We believe in tulips. That'll come home in a minute. Right. Nothing will separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not principalities, not powers, not angels, not things present, not things to come, not hell. Nothing will separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather is risen again and is seated at the right hand of God. It's God that justifies us and it's the Holy Spirit that stands in the gap. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, particularly when he's telling me to come. Come. Do y'all hear that, you guys? Come. Every day he's telling us to come. He's saying, don't draw back. We learned that in Hebrews 10, 39. If any man draw back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But the elect won't draw back because they will be given the grace to persevere. That's why that brother said, let's get at this. I love this. Listen to what this says. He says over in verse, um, verse 10, then which, which, then which when he had done, he saw the man draw his sword, put on the helmet, rushed toward the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force. They were serious about taking him out. You guys see that? They were serious about taking him out. Now, what I want you to capture is verse 11. But the man, what? Not at all discouraged. What kind of faith is that? Right. It's a prepared faith. It's a resolved faith. It's a disposition to stand and engage in the Lord's battles because he understands that moving forward by faith means standing on the word of God. So I'm going to massage this just a little bit so you can get it. I understand the tenuous nature of the metaphor and the analogy of war. We don't like it today. We don't like it today. But if our survival depended upon it, a lot of us would have a slightly altered mindset around spiritual warfare. Would we not? We don't like it. But if our lives depended upon it, we would have a slightly if not radically modified thought process around spiritual warfare. We would, and we wouldn't tolerate a lot of crap that we do today because we're like a bunch of soldiers with our helmet over here, our sword over there, our breastplate, who knows what a breastplate is. Our, our, our loins are not girded. We're walking around with our underclothes on, you know, in, in the brothels. Under the assumption we're not in a war. I'm telling you the truth in Jesus name. I'm telling you the truth. We do not see the warfare that's systematically taking captive our loved ones and dragging them into the Babylonian kingdom as we speak. It's true. It's true. How important visions. 
But the man was not at all discouraged and he failed to what? Cutting and hacking with the greatest of fierceness. Okay, so I'm I'm only going to do one thing with this part. Okay, I only want you to understand one thing. He knows who the enemy is. And because he does, he is ruthless and relentless because it's the enemy. This man is not engaging in what we would call um, friendly fire. He's not hacking at other fellow soldiers. He's focused and he's poignant because what's in front of him is in opposition to the Lord's glory. Did you hear what I just stated? It's in opposition to the Lord's glory and he will advance or die trying. That's the nature of the gospel. What's funny, I think I told you this on Tuesday night. I'll say it now. I'm looking at three or four more minutes and I'm looking forward to Q&A. You and I are the army reserve of a lot of men and women who laid down their life for the gospel. Yep. We haven't even really been put out on the battlefield that much yet. We have a few skirmishes that we go through here in, in the Americas, but nothing real serious. And yet we have all of the arsenal, all of the artillery, all of the updated manual guidance system for waging a good warfare because the depository of truth was safely guarded by the previous church and passed on to us. Do you understand that? And we have it. In many ways, they would tell us we have more of the advanced artillery than they did. They would say that because they would say you have such a secure Bible that a person can take the Bible out of your hand. But you got it on your phone, on your laptop, on your computers. It's everywhere. Am I making some sense? And my sister put her hand on her heart. I wish it was so. I wish it was so. Because if it's in the heart, that is a safe deposit box that the Lord recommends the word be in. See what I'm getting at? And so you take my brother, John Bunyan, when they locked him up for 13 years, first for about uh, six years, he didn't have all these resources. The only thing he had is what he could remember the word of God said while he lay in that prison and received revelations from God. Did y'all get what I just stated? Very much so. So it's important for you and I to understand that what we're not engaging in here is flippant, mythical metaphors to just kind of entertain our sort of uh, imagination around theological things. These are warnings of churchmen who have been engaged in these battles. John Bunyan was engaged in a fierce battle in the Anglican church, which had gone rotten in that day. And they were hunting down every nonconformist preacher you can find because nonconformist preachers are the ones who stood on God's word. I talked to you guys about that on Wednesday, did I not? Right. And they were locked. They were knocking them down everywhere. That's the fight that you see going on in this narrative in John's own view. So after he had received many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace. It's crazy. First Timothy, chapter six, verse 11 and 12. Listen to what. Paul told Timothy, he told Timothy this in the first pastoral epistle to Timothy. He says, but thou, O man of God, 
flee these things. Now, what was he talking about? Materialism, worldliness, carnality, fleshly lust. He says, don't be distracted by it. A lot of your fellow soldiers are trapped by verse 10. Verse 11, flee these things and follow after what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. That's the warfare we're in at the psychological and practical level. Mark it down. I should unpack this. All I'm going to say is this. So if we obey our captain, if we obey our general and follow after, see that phrase follow after? That's a Greek term that means to prosecute. It means to prosecute. That's why I was asking you about the movie La Miserable. Because in La Miserable, there is this lawyer pursuing a man who is guilty of a crime and he pursues him all his life in order that justice might be fulfilled. But it's a complex narrative. And at the end, he lets him go. Because he understands how mercy must triumph over justice in some cases. This is kind of what you're going to get with Lupin, kind of. Slightly different, but kind of, but it's going to be the bomb. Y'all going to enjoy it big time, okay? Like I said, you ain't going to eat because it's 10 episodes. All right, so the point is he pursues righteousness. Righteousness avails godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. One, two, three, four, five, six. When you and I are walking in these qualities, we are invested in the garment of Christ. Those are Christ-like qualities, are they not? Are they? Look at it again. Are those Christ-like qualities? Is that not maturity in the faith? Is that not the armor of God that he's calling us to wear in this battle? Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course it is. From righteousness standing upon who Christ is for us to meekness standing with who Christ is for us. Christ is both righteousness and meekness. Is he not? All of those qualities describe Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do they not? Fine. I love this. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. Whereunto you are also called and have professed a good what? Before how many witnesses? That's what that brother did when he signed his name on the ledger. When he signed his name on the ledger. And he went to battle against those hordes of opposition at the door. Guess who he encouraged, Christian. Do you remember it? When Christian said, this brother made it through. This brother made it through all the odds. When all those other men went away, this brother made it through. I'm ready to go. Do you see how fervent passion and commitment to Christ can strengthen the brethren? Can you see how it strengthens the brethren? how it's necessary to do to strengthen the brother. So if God strengthens you to fight the good fight of faith, it's not for you, it's for others. In the same way, when we capitulate, it has a kind of contaminating effect. When you and I cower, when we weaken, because you already saw it in the COVID thing, how easily people collapse under false narratives, the voice of the beast. And how necessary it is for righteous men and women to stand up and fight against the tide of who can make war with the beast. Christ can. Who can make war with the beast? The righteous can. And they overcame him 
by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto the death. Y'all remember the Bible. That's what this brother did. Did he not? Did he not? It's powerful truth. Powerful truth here. All right, let me go on and finish on up. Notice what it says under uh, point number 13. At which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were already inside the kingdom, even of those that walked upon the top of the uh, palace. I want to call your attention to just one phrase, pleasant voice. So what is Bunyan saying? Outside the kingdom, there's warfare, there's hacking, there's conflict, there's resistance, there's toil, there's struggle. Is it not? It's called agonizomai. Agonizomai. We are fighting a fight. We're running a race. We are struggling. We're wrestling. That's agonizomai. I don't know about you. I know that's where I'm at. I know I'm fighting a warfare. I am not on vacation in Jesus name. I'm not on some island sipping, you know, pina coladas in Jesus' name. I'm not. Every day I'm fighting a battle. I'm very acutely aware that there are stratagems being set up to take the people of God out. Nothing tells me different. People ask me, so, so Pastor, what do you think about the future? I can tell you what I think about the present. What I think about the present is that There are diabolical schemes and mechanisms that are being erected every second of the day to position itself around the people of God, particularly the sleepy ones. Am I making some sense? All right, let me finish this and then we'll talk a little bit. Uh, What I love about this, this is Psalm 1611. Here's a promise, Psalm 1611. This is why I love the psalm. I have to find, this summer I'm going to do a a summer psalm series again because it's such a beautiful thing in the middle of the week. Notice what David said in Psalm 16. Can I have verse one? I want verse one and two and then I'll do verse 11. I love the whole of Psalm 16. David is good. David says what? Preserve me, O God. How come? Because I put my trust in you. That's the doctrine of preservation. You guys got that? Preserve me, O God, because I believe in you. That's beautiful. Now, if you read the rest of it, it'll talk about the blessings in David's life and the warfare he goes through. And if you look at verse 10, look at verse 10. I'm going to close it. Now, this is messianic, but David is uttering it. For you will not leave my soul where? In the grave. Neither will you suffer your holy one to what? See corruption. What is he talking about? The triumph of Christ. Remember, Christ died. He was buried. But then he rose again on the third day. That is the gospel proper, is it not? And he ascended on high. And because he ascended on high, the first fruits of all of his brethren, that means you and I are ascending on high too, are we not? Is it guaranteed? It's absolutely guaranteed. Christ, the first fruits and all of the rest of us at his coming. Look at verse 11. Now here is where this text comes in. You will show me the path of life. Is that what Christian is having shown to him? Stay with me a few more minutes. Is Christian seeing the path of life? Is he not seeing Jesus really summed up in this allegory as being the way, the truth, and the life? Is he not hearing the master's words? If you suffer with me, you will reign with me. Is he not hearing, do not fear them that can kill the body, but fear them that can kill both soul and body in hell? Is he not hearing the man that will lose his life for my sake will what? Gain it. And the one that will keep his life will lose it. Is that what he's hearing? Of course, that's what he's hearing. Is that what John Bunyan was hearing while he was in prison? Yes. 
John was told to persevere. I'm going to say one more thing here. Do you know all that John had to do to walk out of that prison and go back to his family is stop preaching the gospel. That's all he had to do. That's all he had to do. But when God gives you an assignment, you can't do anything but the assignment. He made it clear. If you put your hand to the plow for my name's sake and then turn back, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. That's how serious this stuff is. The reason you and I get to enjoy the benefits of hearing sound gospel preaching and teaching like you're hearing tonight. And I can tell you, even our study is epic compared to what people are hearing around the world. And I'm just giving you a Bible study. You're not hearing these kind of tight narratives expounded scripturally around the world. This is how dark things are today. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Now, I, I think about how privileged you guys are, because I remember this when I was 17, 18 years old, hearing sound doctrine. I'm like, what in the world is this? Just a, a knucklehead out of the hood, having poured into my soul serious men preaching the truth. Right. And it's kept me for 44 years now. It's an amazing thing. Is that not? It's an amazing thing. This is why you and I want sound doctrine. You will show me the path of life and in your presence is what? That's why these people are happy. That's why their voices are pleasant because they're in the presence of the Lord. How can you not be happy? How can you not? Come on in. Come on in, brother. Come on in. You in now and you got all kinds of saints happy to meet you, happy to greet you, happy to holler at you because they knew that it was the grace of God that caused you to persevere. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a great promise, isn't it? Point number 13, 14, 15, 16, done. I'm going to talk to you through. At which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even those that walked upon the top of the palace. Number 14, come in, come in. This is where we get our title. Eternal glory, you shall what? That's our subtitle, right? Glory to win glory to win. If you and I are distracted from the fact that this is a call to glory, this is where you and I will get in trouble. If you don't constantly have the Spirit of God help remind you that he's called you to glory because the enemy has a false glory ready to sell you 24 hours a day. 15. So he went in and he was clothed with such garments as they Right. He's now clothed in the garments of Christ's righteousness. The goal means he's been tried and he has been found to pass the test. Remember what Job says? I know that when he has tried me, I shall come forth as what? As gold. There it is. Number 16. Then Christian what? Then Christian what? Look at it. That boy was uh, he was struggling for a while and now he's encouraged. See what one believer can do? See what one faithful believer can do? How he can stir you up, how he can motivate you, how he can dislodge you from your paralysis, from your dubiousness, from your waywardness. Can you see how important exhortation is? Encouragement to fight the good fight of faith. Then Christian smiled and said, I think verily I know the meaning of this. Now said Christian, let me go his, I'm ready. I want my turn. Do you see it? He wants to get to the kingdom. He wants to get to the kingdom. 
he was just exhorted in excellent things, was he not? That was a great church service for him. That was a great church service for him. He's done with this, with this frame, is he not? That was a great church service for him. He goes away now with his faith buoyed up, does he not? That's the whole purpose of it. Nay, nay, stay, said the interpreter, tell I've showed you a little bit more. And after that, you shall go your way. So you and I have to deal with now two things. The seared conscience. And the man that's trapped by a vision that does not allow him to comprehend the mitigating blessing of the gospel. These are two visions. These all have to do with apostasy and reprobation. Okay, that's what they have to deal with. Some tough stuff, but we got to look at it. Apparently, interpreter, who is the spirit of Christ, is saying, look here, seared consciences are real issues and reprobation is a real issue. And it really is. All right, it's quarter to nine. I'll take three questions. Somebody do me a run. I'll take three questions and preferably females. Um, and then we're going to get out of here. Uh, I am encouraging you to join us tomorrow night. I'm also encouraging you to um, bring somebody uh, so they can hear the gospel. We will have some good preaching, but excellent uh, worship as well. I'm talking to you guys online. There may be a few people because I told them if they wanted to, they can send uh, uh, email questions. You may have an email question or, or two up there. We will stop uh, summarily in a few minutes and then I'll have my guys help me with some stuff. All right. Whoever has the mic, who has the mic? Any sisters with the mic? Go ahead on, Lisa. Um, I met a man yesterday, and he calls himself a conservative Christian, mm -hmm. and conservative Christian, mm -hmm. and then he told me what church he went to, and I know that the church has shenanigans, but mm -hmm. anyway, he, he was so um, kind of righteous in his um, ideas that women preachers, and there's a gay uh, uh, minister that's coming from El Salvador to come church, to, uh, preach in their church, and they have fellowship, and then they invite the Catholic church in, because the Catholic church is, you know, the people that are in the Catholic church are a lot of the Latinos, and they're misguided, so they're coming into their church, and so he was, in the way that he was, he was, I bet, righteous, that he really believed that, he goes, I think everything's okay, LGBT. L, no, LGBTQ, but he doesn't believe in the T part. Sure. And, I mean, he just sounded jacked up, and so I just disagreed with him. And um, so I just was thinking about him. He really believes this is true. He's being led this way. What happens when he gets to the, to the gates? Well, let's, let's, say, let's do a couple things. I'm going to do three things with this one. This is a classic case of the deceived conservative Christian. Just want you to get that. So I, I've taught you at grace. You may not listen. I don't care. No, I do care. That's why I'm going to say it again as we get closer to the election. I'll be saying, Lord, I ain't telling them again. I'm not saying it again. I'm not warning them again. I'm not going to tell them again. I'm going to tell them again, Lord. I'm going to tell them one more time. I'm going to tell them again. The notion of um, Christianity being equivalent to a conservative party platform is idolatry. The, 
until Christians overcome the dialectical process of politics, they will never, ever be able to hold to the Bible. So I'm going to help you. Y'all want me to help you? Because you, you should already know. The train has left the station. It's going in one direction. Transhumanism, which is the ultimate expression of the Antichrist system and hostility against God at the highest levels of technology, which their own technos, their own children are technologically uh, recreated. The train is going in that direction and both the Republicans and Democrats own the train. So you can listen to any of those fools, whether Republicans or Democrats, who will give you a quasi-Christian argument, and they've already sold the Bible out because, as he just confessed, we cool with the lesbians and the gays and, and, the, and the queers and all that because we need them in our camp. Like God needs anybody. Like God needs anybody. God is not a, a party man. He's not a president. You don't vote for God. Okay, you don't vote for God. God is sovereign. He rules over everything. And being a conservative is not a uh, virtuous thing today. It is a compromise of biblical truth. I warned us about this back when I was dealing with the woke doctrine right at the beginning of COVID. I told you the left right political narrative is that the left is completely kooky and the right is buying the institution. And they're both kooky. They both are in the insane asylum and they're hoping to deceive masses of people into thinking that the lesser of two evils is the way you get the job done. But the lesser of two evils is called the dialectical process where change happens incrementally as you give up biblical platforms a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Before long, you are a Christian that really does not believe the Bible and you call yourself conservative. You're only conservative politically. You are not conservative biblically. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? You are not conservative biblically. You are, and, and here's what I warned way back when we were opposing the, uh, the horrible notion that two men could be married and it be constituted a biblical marriage. We challenged that, and you remember my friend Brian, who used to call all the time on my show. Uh, we challenged that on the doctrine of the slippery slope argument. We said, if they are able to marry, they will redefine marriage so that it is no longer marriage between a man and a woman. The moment that becomes accepted, any kind of thing called union can be defined as marriage, only it's not biblical. If you can say a man and a man can be married, a woman and a woman can be married in Jesus' name, then what you're saying is the Bible does not mean what it says. And at that point, you have no authority. You have no biblical authority. If you accept gay marriage, you got to accept trans marriage. You have to, because now the same baseless premise for which gay marriage is accepted is going to be the grounds for trans marriage. Am I making some sense? I told you back then, as I told my friend Brian, I said, Brian, you're going to be engaging. We're going to be engaging in polygamy. We're going to be engaging in multiple marriages. We're going to be engaging in bestiality. The wealthy people are already marrying their animals. This is this is Leviticus 18 through 22. 
working itself out in our culture at the present time. So when you and I don't recognize the dialectic, bringing into capture the stated truth of the word of God, you have to know when stated truth is brought into captivity, regulatory capture, it's never designed to preserve that truth, but to modify that truth. And once you modify the truth, it's not the truth. Truth can't be modified. Either it's adopted or it's not. And I'm just telling you, I'll give it a few more years, just a few more years, and the Republican Party will be nothing. It will be nil. It will be gone. Do you hear me? There's no difference between the Republican Party and the uh, Democrat Party. And I'm watching all of the the, uh, stars right now, all of the heavy hitters in the Republican Party pretending to be Christian. I'm just waiting for the real battle to start. Because I know they have no armor on. They have no armor on when it comes to the policies that they are tolerating. They have no armor on. So you and I have you and I have one or two things to do. Are you ready? You can be a biblical Christian or you can be a non-biblical Christian. Which is not a Christian. Y'all get what I just stated? Right. Because I can tell you in a minute we're going to be done with all of these uh, alphabet soup names. And that's because we will be wholesale trapped by transhumanism at the Neuralink technology level, which is right around the corner, and we'll be done with sex. You must know this. You must know this. This will be done in a few years. So people are arguing and wrestling for, you know, we got to try to find a way to bring them in. They're not going to even be themselves in a few years. See what I'm getting at? Right, it's very important. Um, he also said, I said, it's, I, how about the Bible? He goes, I go, do you guys study the Bible? He said, oh, this Bible's just, that's just a bunch of stories. So he's not a conservative Christian. So do un- understand that there are a bunch of people that open their mouth, talk about being a CC, okay? And, and it's just a bunch of crock. You're not a Bible-based Christian. And we're going to be dealing with that once, once Christian gets over, over on the other side of the cross and we deal with some of these by all means and, and talkative and some of these other worldly wise uh, characters. We're going to be getting into all of that because it builds your discernment on being able to discern when folks call themselves Christian, but they do not hold to the biblical truth. And, and so I'm looking forward to that because this is going to challenge, challenge you at the emotional level. Because you got a lot of loved ones call themselves Christians. And no biblical grounds that substantiates their claims. This is time to put your armor on in relationship to your loved ones. Who has the mic? Go on, go on, Leah. I actually have a question, but of course course it's attached to a little story. But um, I remember being in a season of just sharing the gospel at Rote and realizing that I'm just a resounding gong. And by God's grace, I intuitively knew I needed a softening in my heart for the gospel I'm sharing to come from the heart. Well, that softening of the heart exercise came through a season of um, revisiting my demons. So I don't mean any disrespect. I know God's word is perfect, but sometimes I think that the prodigal son story needs a part two or a longer narrative that is how do you as a prodigal son navigate through church after a detour season with your demons 
then God the Father reconnects you to the fold, but your return has caused your brothers and sisters to stumble. I tried to search a possible commentary for a part two um, from other verses in the Bible like 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11, and Romans 14, 4. Uh, I'll, I'll read that one because it's short. Who art thou that judges another man's servants? To his own master he standeth and falleth. Uh, yeah, he shall be holden, for God is able to make him stand. How do you navigate when you're returning to the aftermath? You know, obviously you've All right, I got it. Let me, let me ask a question. Are, uh, is the live stream still on? Are they able to hear like Leah's talking? I need to know that. I need to, you guys on live stream, give me an affirmation that they can hear through these wireless mics because we need to know this for tomorrow because we had problems on Tuesday night with this and I need to make sure all the mics are running through the system. So you can confirm that. Let me uh, say that you don't need a part two. You need to really grasp with, grapple with both brothers because both brothers actually gives you this kind of symbiotic dynamic of the brother stumbling at the return of his little brother who is the prodigal. He's stumbling at little brother because he is failing to understand that he's no different than little brother except by the grace of God. Did that make some sense, you guys? That's all that was. Father, I've been with you. I done done this. I done done that. I done done the other thing. whoop dee doo You only did it by the grace of God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you'd have ran down there to the club right along with him. And if truth be told, we know what you were doing in the bedroom and in the bathroom. You were thinking about going. You were just too scared to go. You know what I'm saying is the truth. There are some of us sinners who go. And then there are other of us sinners who think about going. (laughs) We too scared to go. Because, you know, you got all of these fears about, man, I, I want to go, but I, I. And then when your little brother comes back or your little sister comes back, you want to get on your high horse and act like you're better than them. No, you're not better than them. You're just, you were grace not to fall into that rebellion and may God keep you hence never falling into that rebellion. But please understand, please understand you are no better than your little brother. This is why the doctrine of total depravity must be understood. Total depravity means you and I are capable of the most heinous crimes on the planet. And the only reason we don't do it is because God keeps us back. Who do you think you are that you hung out and stayed in church and read your Bible and you stayed saved and you got married and you're strong? It's only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. That's all. That's all it is by the grace of God. And then we're not done. God might just let you run loose and sow your wild oats after the prodigal come home. You know, you still got some life to live. You might lose your mind tomorrow and be out there in the, you know, in the far country at 959 years old. What's she doing out there in the far country? She ain't got but two years to live. The Lord had to show her she's no different. He's no different than this brother or sister apart from grace. Do you guys understand that? This story doesn't have to change. Just take a look at that crazy knucklehead, legalistic, self-righteous, pharisaical brother. He was miserable. He didn't even know the, the joyful noise of repentance. What a beautiful thing. All right, who got the mic? Because I, I got about eight minutes. Yes, I can't hear you. 
Oh, excellent. Great. Who has the mic? All right. Okay, Marlis. All right. Um, you mentioned about putting on the armor. And it's, the Bible says, put on the armor. Um, is, are we, are we, can you clarify what put on means? Is it a mental thing? Is it would you, when you become saved, have you put on the armor? Do you have to put on the piece? You know, I've heard people say, I, I grew up learning you were supposed to pray on the pieces. So can you please clarify once and for all, how can we make sure we as believers in Christ Jesus are clothed in the armor. And can we lose the armor from day to day and do we have to put it back on? Because that, that's the kind of stuff that I, I, I grew up with, so mm-hmm. I need to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was stupid. And then also, when you say put it on concerning your family, please uh, clarify what you mean yeah, by it's that. Really, really simple. Really simple. Now, it's, it's simple, but I get her point. So let me help you guys. You can go back in the archives and find my teachings twice in my career on putting on the whole armor of God. You can find it. I mean, you know, you can imagine that a million sermons have been preached on Ephesians six ten through 17. You can imagine that, right? And one of the things I discovered, the best way to explain what that means Putting on, putting on, putting on is a term that's used all the way into the book of Romans. It's the idea of making a public profession of your walk with Christ such that your lifestyle becomes consistent with your profession of faith. Did you hear what I just stated? It's just as visible and uh, tactile as putting on clothes every day. So the idea is simply being clothed in your profession of faith in a way in which people can identify you. That's Ephesians chapter four. Put off the old man, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after him who is created in true holiness and righteousness. So when we put on garments, we are saying something, a lot of different things. When we're putting on the whole armor of God, it is simply believing what God says about his care for our lives. To put on the whole armor of God, not just the armor, the whole armor of God is to believe the promises of God. Every piece of the panoply is a promise. Every piece of the panoply is a promise. It is a scriptural promise. If you are to put first on the helmet of salvation, the promise is that salvation is a work that God has accomplished in our behalf and our hope is in him who is our salvation. When you put the helmet on, you are protecting your mind against lies about God having loved us and saved us by his grace. And we live in hope of the glory of God, which has promised us and cannot lie. When you put the helmet on, you are protecting your mind with the message of salvation the helmet of salvation. It protects you against the stuff that would come at your head, that would come at your mind. And the only way you can protect your mind is by the word of God. They are the promises of God. When you put on the breastplate of righteousness to cover your heart, your vital parts, you are believing God for the righteousness of Christ. 
Christ is your righteousness. So when the arrows come, you have this breastplate of righteousness protecting you against accusations. Your adversary is an accuser of the brethren. His war is to make you believe that you are not saved. Did you hear what I just stated? And you can never maintain your belief in your salvation without a helmet on, without a breastplate. You're too weak in your own nature. You and I will betray ourselves when we look at ourselves. So I said that Asian brother, he could never ever find security because he was looking at it in terms of his own character and conduct. He did not look away to Christ and find his confidence of security in Christ. Your security is not in you, it's in Christ. Am I making some sense? But you got to have on the breastplate of righteousness in order to endure accusations. You endure temptations, endure people wanting to say things about you, which is what the Christian had to go through. Jesus had to go through it. He was a wine bibber. He was a a child of fornication. He was a ringleader of a sect. He was filled with demons. They were saying that all the time about Jesus, were they not? But did he not always have on the full armor of God? This is how we know, because he beat the devil in the wilderness day one, did he not? Word of God, word of God, word of God. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And so to put on the full armor of God is to really lean into the promises of God. That's all that is. There is no other panoply but the promises of God's word. Did y'all get that? To have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel is to believe that your call and your walk, because you have shoes on, is to make sure you preach the gospel of peace to men and women. That's why God lets you live. And the sword of the spirit is for you to be able to handle this book. To handle this book. This is the sword of the spirit. Thus saith the Lord. And you have to believe that the sword is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide asunder soul and spirit. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You have to believe that if this word goes out, it does not return void. It will do what God wants it to do when you and I see it right in the right way with the right motive. Am I making sense? And you wage war wisely. And then you couple all of that with continual prayer. Did that make some sense? That is what the armor of God, they are the promises of God and all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of the Father in Christ through us, the church. So to the degree that you put on God's word and believe God's word, you're putting on the armor. That makes some sense. Does that make some sense? Does that make some sense, my brother? Yep. Somebody else before we shut it down. Is that it? Go on, go on, AJ. Hey, Pastor. Um, my uh, question was around the idea of uh, believing. And so um, I was thinking about Mark chapter 9. And uh, verses 23 and 24, um, because it, it, there was a man who came to Jesus and um, he needed help. I think it was for his uh, his son. And he said, and I remember Jesus saying, or him saying, um, you know, Jesus asked the question, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Right. So um, I'm kind of in this... Uh, 
this thought of like, you know, like hoping versus knowing, you know, like uh, how did those two exist in the same person, you know, the belief and unbelief. And so um, because if I say like, well, I'm, I'm sure that I believe in Jesus, that he died for my sins and, and the gospel is true versus I hope that it's true. Am I in danger? Um, so, yeah, there, there's a need to restructure the way you understand Mark chapter 9. So the first thing you want to do with Mark chapter 9 is not create a bifurcation between believing and unbelieving. Because all the man was doing was being honest about what he is as a human being. And, and it's important to know that, that the idea of believing God is not the idea of believing God comprehensively, totally across all situations and all ideas and all concepts and all propositions and all uh, events and everything. It's not possible for you and I to believe God across the total sphere of our human makeup. Did you hear what I just stated? It's important for you to get this. If you, if you say you do, you're actually inferring that you have omniscience. I've talked to you about this before. You don't have omniscience. You don't know what's going to happen a minute from now. So you can't say, I believe God for tomorrow. I hear that stuff in churches all the time. Right. The, the next minute's not here. But more than that, it is completely understandable to have a grounded confidence in God in a particular thing with which you have been able to negotiate an understanding of that thing and a complete Fidelity in God's view and promises and purposes for that one thing. Did you hear what I just stated? Right. So the word of God will bear upon, let's say, my call to 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 work and provide an honest living. And God gives me the grace every day to get up and go out and make a living rather than rob banks. I'm trusting God in that equation is showing up in my life, both by the grace to get up and go to work and by my desire to be able to do it for God's glory. I am trusting God in that thing. Is that true? Right. There are 500,000 different things in your life that are going to come before you for which when they do, you got to discover whether or not you trust God in those things, too. But until they come, you can't say you do. In other words, what that brother is doing when he says, Lord, I believe you because I wouldn't be coming to you if I didn't. I wouldn't be seeking you out publicly if I didn't believe you. I wouldn't be coming to you and you alone, Lord, if I didn't believe you. I wouldn't be coming to the only person that I believe that could heal my servant if I didn't believe you or heal my son if I didn't believe you. But I have to be honest, Lord, in the present exigencies, in the present struggle with my baby that's on the brink of death. I'm dealing with all kind of emotional obstacles and internal contradictions and all kind of fears and all kinds of doubts. Right. Because I don't have an answer to the immediate problem and my mind is running in a thousand different directions. Of course, I believe you. 
but I need you to help me in the areas in which my unbelief is present and bringing all kinds of turmoil in my life. That's an honest man and an honest man is never going, going to hell. He'll never go to hell because he didn't lie talking about my faith is so large that there's nothing about you, God, that I don't believe. There's nobody on the, there's not even a biblical character that has ever demonstrated the notion of perfect, comprehensive faith in God at all times under all situations. No believer has ever done that. Are you guys hearing me? No believer has ever done it. I want you to think this through. I'm just going to use this so it can be very clear. Because I understand what AJ is saying, but what we often do is think that belief and unbelief are mutually exclusive in the life of a man or woman who is called a believer in Christ, our child of God, who is simultaneously righteous and sinful at the same time. That's what you are. So wherever sin takes on a manifestation, there is a weakness of faith evidenced in it, right? Now, is not the relationship that we have with the Lord one in which the Lord helps us? Does the Lord help us? Do we need help? We need help because we are weak in a gazillion things. It's natural to our relationship. This does not surprise God. That's why Jesus told Peter, hey, Peter, Boy, you getting ready to go through it. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. This was not uh, an un, uh, extraordinary thing. That's what Jesus does for all of us. Am I making some sense? But if you and I were to be respectful of the event, um, and this is where we got to be careful not to over-rationalize the blessed benefit of trusting God, uh, that man's child was dying. You know. Uh, and he was just reeling through it. That doesn't mean he's not a believer. At all. Right? Not at all. When the master said, if you will just believe, the master was calling him to another level of faith, which was appropriate. And he says, great, help me do it. Did that make sense? You know, because the master would say, hey, look, you came to me publicly. We're getting ready to glorify God publicly. Just walk away believing me. I won't do, but I see what my son is going through. Help me. That makes all the sense in the world. Particularly if you and I know the kind of throes that a parent goes through with a child possessed by demons and the kind of ups and downs we go through and the ins and outs and the crazy. And we still believe God. We never not believe God, but we're dealing with so many different areas in which our weaknesses and our fears and our anxieties and our psychological bents and our biases move us in a direction that we know that our present state of faith is not adequate to handle that. Therefore, we what? We ask. So remember what he's doing is praying. Is that brother praying? Because Jesus is the one we pray to. So let me ask a question. I believe Jesus. Did I pray to Jesus? Am I not believing Jesus in praying to Jesus? 
if, if I'm praying to Jesus about more faith, am I not using faith to pray for more faith in the area in which I don't have enough faith? Right. Right. So, so what you and I have to know is that faith is not a static thing. I've told you this. It's organic. Faith is organic. This is why he talks about it being a mustard seed. This is why he talks about growing faith. This is why we learned this several years ago. The disciples said, Lord, increase our faith. So faith is not a static thing. Also, I want to just say this about it so you can get it, because the nature of saving faith is designed to always keep you seeking God. Because the teacher humility is the safest place for you to be. Because humility allows you to make your mistakes and recover from them more quickly. And the vast majority of the mistakes you and I make are mistakes that are rooted in unbelief. Did you understand what I just stated? They're rooted in unbelief. And so if I, if I recognize the character of my faith at the present time as being limited in its scope, as being weak in its constitution, then I'm going to be honest with God about the limited scope and weakness of my faith in areas, even if I'm just contemplating something. Like, you know, <laughs> right now with all of the crap that's going on, we're contemplating all kind of stuff. A lot of us are. And I'm going, Lord, I don't want to go through that. I do not want to go through that. I don't know if I can handle that. Am I making some sense? I am not at all trepidatious or concerned about being that honest with God. Do you understand that? Do you, have y'all ever read your Bible? Like ever read your Bible? Have you ever read your Bible? Okay. I mean, because you got brothers in the Bible that really went through it. I'm going to throw Jonah back at you. Was he a believer? Was he a believer? And God loved him. That boy had issues, didn't he? His faith was extremely limited, wasn't it? Extremely limited. It was limited to such a degree for a season that he said no to God. That was that big old element of unbelief going on. And yet he still had faith in God. Because when, when, he, when he was thrown overboard, as he's, you know, blowing air bubbles down to the bottom of the sea, he's crying out to God. <laughs> right? Right. Somebody told me the other day, Solomon wasn't saved. I said, I can see how you can say that. But Solomon was loved of the Lord before he was even born. Jedediah was his name. God loved that fool. See, somebody going to write to me, Pastor, don't call Solomon a fool. Solomon called himself a fool. That's called the book of Ecclesiastes. Y'all don't know that. That's the confession of a king. He says, man, I was a fool. I took all this money, got all these women, did all these things, had all these parties, had the greatest time in the world, and then I came to find out I was a fool. And then I came to realize that when I die, I'm not going to be any better than a poor person. He says, when I thought about this, it vexed me. Right, so here you got this guy who on one level is the most brilliant man in the world, capable of solving all kinds of wisdom knots in terms of people's problems. Y'all know that. All of the kings came to him. 
but he could not overcome the manipulative, cunning aspects of his nature when it came to material goods and women. He couldn't overcome it. You can imagine how he struggled as a child of God, can you? You can imagine. He struggled with having accessibility at too many things. Like most of y'all poor and broken in with me, so y'all, we don't know this. See, God is good. God is good to poor broke folk because if you don't have opportunity at it, all you can do is just wonder, what would it be like if I had a hundred billion dollars? You probably would be a mess. Right? And so people that don't understand grace don't understand the kind of conversation we're having now. Okay? Because God saves high and low, rich and poor. He saves all kinds because he employs them. Like Solomon's big task, I told you this. Everybody has one major thing that they do. I'm never going to not teach this because it's true. Like a lot of people are often trying to figure out what God wants them to do. There's only a couple things he wants you to do. There's only a couple things, okay, in, in the area of vocations or in callings. And once you discover that, you're on your way. And a lot of times you're actually operating out of that calling without being uh, cognizant, cognizant of it. You're not quite aware that you're operating out of your gift. But that's okay. God will do that too. He will let you actually operate out of your gift and you're still oblivious to that gift. Okay. But almost all believers have one fundamental calling or gift or office to execute before um, before they are settled into just the generic life of a believer. Don't be, you know, this, this one is a big topic, what I'm, uh, I'm talking about now. This one is a big topic because the enemy has stripped us as human beings of all of the biblically ordained offices into which we have been called. And because we can't see these as offices, we don't know that they're callings and gifts. Did you hear what I just stated? We don't know that being a woman is a calling and a gift. So you don't spend time really learning what it means to be a biblical woman. You're just a woman. That's a calling. It's a calling. That comes with a whole set of criteria and promises because it impacts the world exponentially. The same thing with a man. The reason why our men are all over the map is because they don't understand that biblical manhood is an absolute calling. And so they are meandering in the wilderness of confusion and chaos around issues like, you know, masculinity. Well, they wouldn't have that problem if they understood biblical manhood. A woman's married. You say, well, Lord, what you, Lord, what you want me to do? What? Yeah, Lord, I'm trying to figure out what I should do. What? Be married. Be a biblical wife. Did you hear what I just stated? Right, because... There are very few biblical wives in the world today. Very few biblical wives. Enemy has stripped that title from you. 
He came to steal, kill, and destroy. So you don't even know that a wife is an office, it's a calling with a set of criterias and, and promises and giftings that allow you to actually ex- exhibit what it means to be more than a woman. A woman and a wife are two different things. Now you can't be a wife without being a woman, but you can be a woman and not be a wife. Am I making some sense? I see what the enemy has done to us. Same thing with being a man. Man, I'm I'm I got seven children. I'm still trying to figure out what the what? What? You a man and you're married and you don't know what your calling is? Please. Your calling is to be a biblical man, a biblical husband, and a biblical father that requires you to be a provider, a protector as well as a producer. As a woman, if you are a godly woman, you're called to glorify God in your bodies, which are his, and to uniquely exhibit those qualities of a feminine species created in the Imago Dei in a way which does not uh, contravene or contradict or come into conflict with male characteristics. God didn't raise you up to fight against men. But to, but to augment the beautiful specimen of what it means to be a female for the glory of God. Absolutely fabulous quality. You find it in Genesis 1, and then you find it in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Women start this thing, and, and women close out this thing. But they don't close it out without a husband. Did y'all get that? The woman is prophesied. She doesn't even come into existence. She's on the inside of the man. Your Bible says the man was first and then the woman and that the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. All that's all twisted today. All that's all so jacked up today. I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know where to begin. And so. The Bible starts with male and female created he them in the image of God created he him. And the Bible closes with the bride and the bridegroom saying, come, sinner, come. Whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever wants to drink of the water of life freely, let him come. Collaboration of the husband and the wife in the beginning. Collaboration of the husband and the wife at the end of the book. Did y'all get that? And that's the true church of Christ, not this false church. The false churches are harlots who have left their husband and gone out into the street to give their goods to solicitors. That's the false church. And that's a lot of women today, too. Do you understand what I'm getting at? This is why they don't prosper for the glory of God. This is why they're not content. This is why a lot of our women are turning into dykes. It's just true. I know I'm telling the truth. And our culture has aided and abetted it with medical technology. The ambiguity of the sexes is a consequence of men and women not taking their roles seriously. So now we're doing the both and thing. Swinging both ways. Swinging all ways. It's not just both ways, it's all ways now. 
It's so, it's so always you get a headache when you wonder, what am I looking at? And they're trying to get that thing to run up into the church. That's what I meant about the conservatives. The conservatives do not fool me. They're closet homosexuals. Um, you know what we're talking about? A biblical worldview versus not. That's all we're talking about here. This is all we're talking about here. Uh, the most dangerous man or woman on the planet is a person that understands their Bible. Can you elaborate? How, how are you going to elaborate? Elaborate, bring it out a little bit more. I mean, I have some. Let me see. Uh, now, you know you're going to be open for correction if you say the wrong thing. <laughs> if I step out of bounds. I assure you, we will deal okay. with you. I was reading. Uh, bring not, his volume down. I was reading not too long ago about the experimental mechanical womb. And along with that, the experiments on the construction of the embryo through cellular manipulation outside of the womb. So just to go along with or go further from what you were saying about we don't know what we are anymore, I believe we're going to come to a point where it's most people are going to say it's immaterial because that child that will be born in a mechanical incubator or a mechanical womb, I don't know where it's going to get its spirituality from. That's all I wanted to say. Yeah. Uh, you started us down a wormhole. Um, and he knows what I mean by that. And I don't want to talk about it at 930 at night because you know I can. I can go in at length into this. I've been already giving you guys small inklings about um, about the uh, technology of the Antichrist system. I've already told you that. Technon is a Greek term that means child children. So technology is the conception, creation, conception, and application of someone's child. They even use that terminology in business. This is my baby. This is my child. Technology. So because of where we are with our technological advancements, we automatically know that we can actually um, interfere with and modify and induce a kind of hybrid life right now. This is what we know. This is actually happening in China and other parts of the world, too. At some point, we'll be facing that head on. Um, I'll give this one caveat because I, I really do believe it. I believe that um, at a certain point, there will be an intervention on God's part to prove the fallacy of those systems. So whenever you and I are dealing with the agendas, the um, balloon testing, the uh, predictive programming, propaganda of these um, dystopian systems, and you, you have to see them. You got to know your adversary. You have to. You have to know your adversary because your adversary is not coming after you. He's coming after your children. All he needs you to be is naive enough to think that you don't have to worry about your children and then he's, he'll have them because they'll come home with all of the weird ideas. Or your grandkids. I just say that to say that um, it's very, very 
plausible that at a certain threshold of the manifestation of this dystopian uh, Orwellian uh, 1984 creation of a global surveillance state system with nanotechnology and Euro-link technology interfaced into the human product, because human beings are called products now. But you guys learned that when we dealt with COVID, and I told you that the COVID shots put product numbers in people. You guys know that now. That's why you can find your product number on your cell phone. If you took the shot, you got a product number. You're a product. So let me keep going, because there's a product number on every human being, not in you, but on you. Okay, so you, you, have, to, you have to know that. You are nothing but a commodity. That's the way the world and governments have to see you because this is how they dictate income and revenues in terms of your usefulness. Do you guys understand what I just stated? So what you're seeing is a divorce between government and the people at the accountability level because technology is allowing them to hide more and more in their offices and work through computers to dictate outcomes of which you and I are being conditioned to only talk to algorithms and bots now. You're hardly talking to any human beings. And in the next seven years, it will be almost uh, ubiquitous pervasive everywhere that a lot of your business with your government will never be face to face. Do you guys understand what I just stated? This is all old sci-fi stuff we watched back in the 70s and the 80s. It's, it's, it's at the brink of occurring. And the question that the Christian will have to ask, we talked about this in our music ministry last night as well, the Christian will have to ask himself or herself themselves, what constitutes life in this world? You're going to have to ask these questions. What constitutes life in this world? So I'm going to give you a little framework so you're not left hanging, but, but you're going to have to think it through because we've been distracted so many times by our world and our life that we don't really know how to get a hold of the important pillars that constitutes our life. So the Christian is going to have to understand the economy of God as was designed from the beginning and ask themselves, where are they at in that economy? That economy has to do first and foremost with relationships. The first and foremost economy is the economy of relationship. Relationships are economic systems. Somebody's writing it down because they're smart. If you're not writing it down, you're not smart. It is not good for men to be alone. That's an economic system. It is a prerequisite to a business agenda. God set up the business in the beginning and he put man in charge of that business under him and he constituted the necessity of a team to run that business in order for that business to spread around the world. Did that make some sense? So we're talking about relationship, fundamental, as an economic uh, basis for safety and preservation. That means the Christian is stupid if they think they can do life without other people. And they're very dumb if they think that they can subordinate the concept of the family as unnecessary or irrelevant to the sustaining of 
spiritual godliness because all God talks about as the dearest institution to him is the family. Even when he uses the term family at the larger national level, you only out of all the families of the earth have I known. Family is a fundamental economy. Money is a fundamental economy. Money is integrated into our work ethic. We work to eat. We work to eat. We work to acquire revenues to eat. We work to acquire revenues to interact with other people. Did you guys follow that? The relationship is an economic system. Our work ethic is an economic system by which we procure for ourselves the capacity to sustain that family. That becomes a real serious issue. People should have taken more serious aims at securing the capacity for you to be in control of your economic system. Are you hearing me? Because not only are they taking the family away, they're taking the money away. Right. So uh, the, the need to be able to understand the importance of family, the need to be able to understand the importance of business, entrepreneurial, or at least expertise and skills that allow you to uh, sustain a business model that can uh, uh, recurse to you uh, economic finances so that you can preserve your family and then expand the purpose of God through that economic system. All of that in conjunction with a high priority around spiritual things, that third leg is critical to sustaining the first two, right? A God-centered life, a worship-oriented life, a life of redemption centered in the person and work of Christ at the level of preserving relationship, preserving a strong economic capacity for recursive benefits is what the church was supposed to prove itself in the world as your Bible says, let them work with quietness and meekness, providing for themselves and for others who cannot provide for themselves. Are y'all listening to me? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the Amish. That's what I'm talking about. The extraction of their capacity to know that family was important, worship was important, and governing your own finance through hard work was important. Why? Because when the system comes in to usurp those three categories, if you are well entrenched in those things, you can fight a good warfare. You can resist the enemy at that level. But where the church is in America is so devastated in those three capacities right now that we need an intervention from God to even bring us back to a quality of being where we can operate out of those three legs. Did that make sense? The fourth leg in those, in those systems is the leg of evangelism. So if our worship was proper, if our priorities and family were proper, if our economic uh, capacities were secure, then you and I have a healthier, much more optimistic outlook in evangelism. Remember, we're always called to replicate the gospel. We're always called to replicate the gospel because there's going to always be somebody less fortunate than you. The poor you will always have with you. And God actually sustains this uh, reciprocal system of economics between his people when they honor God at the level of taking care of the poor. 
If he prospers you, you peel some of that off. You don't need but enough to eat today. Am I making some sense? Right. And, and, and once God, um, once God works in enough of us to be able to operate at healthy levels around these tiers. Now, we're not going to all get all these tiers right. We should have, but we're not going to get all of them right. But where you get your tiers right, you can be part of the overall kingdom mandate, which God is uh, taking, uh, bringing to pass in this world. This is going to include a bunch of the people at the highest levels of the NGOs. You do understand what I just stated. There are believers at the highest levels of non-governmental organizations. There are believers in governmental systems. You have to know that. Do you people read your Bible? How about Joseph? How about Daniel? Right? Y'all follow what I'm saying? So these are going to be men and women who actually take God serious at the level of their identity, at the level of their gender, at the level of their calling, at the level of their offices. They're going to take God serious and he's going to put them in these positions to either preserve life or dismantle full fledged diabolical antichrist systems. You have to know that I'm I'm about to open my Bible again on y'all. Just read your Bible because that's the warfare we're fighting, right? It looks like to you and me, because the enemy loves lying to us. It looks like we don't have anybody in these systems doing the work of the Lord. We do, but they're doing it in a quiet way because they're not called to be ostentatious. They're lambs. Remember, they're sheep. Right. And so you and, and you know what they're expecting of you and me? Pray for them. Y'all, y'all join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness and your kindness. Uh, thank you for people who are willing to keep their eyes open and, and help us to do this with joy and with faith and with confidence and with um, optimism. Even though we have to do it with some trepidation, we're just like Pilgrim Lord. We are amazed. And sometimes, you know, out of our own wits, when we look at the technology, when we look at the plans, when we look at the agenda, when we see the manip- manipulation, when we hear the propaganda, we can, we can feel like who can make war with the beast. We know better, though. We know better. We know that you are way ahead of the enemy. So help us to walk in confidence, joy. Help us to recover our offices, recover our callings. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Um, Take us home safely tonight. Give us great rest. Help us to make right choices between now and tomorrow. Bring us out in special convocation to worship you and adore you and to support our brothers and sisters in Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.